It is good to be with you uh, this year, a year delayed from last year's trip and plan. If ever there is a year when preachers might have a Sunday or two banked up, this is the year for it. Uh, whenever Wayne asked if I could be over the weekend, I said absolutely can. I'm sure my congregation at home would be happy to have me gone for a weekend after the last a year of not having very many guest preachers and speakers in because of the pandemic that we've been in. It's good to be here today and have this opportunity to study God's Word together. Please turn your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Philippians. We will be there as our study time continues here this afternoon. I want to talk to you about a man named Tom, and I'll call him typical Tom because Tom's not a real person. Tom is your average American person, an individual who has a pursuit for happiness who's trying to find it in every place that he can, who's looking for it, who's attempting with all of life's pleasures and all of life's things, with energy and wealth and time, just to find the ever-elusive, sustaining happiness. And typical Tom does what most Americans do to find that happiness. He looks outside and within himself and asks himself, what things will make me happy? So typical Tom reasons to himself, I think I'll be happy if I can move out of the city and into the suburbs. Over the last year, a lot of people, at least in Nashville, have been convinced themselves that moving out of the city to the suburbs will make them happy, as we see moving vans to the suburbs all the time. If I had a bigger house and more land, a place for the kids to play in the back, then I will be happy, and I'll have that sustained happiness that I'm looking for. And when I get to that home, if I could just update that home a little bit and get the amenities that I want to have, then I'll finally have that all-elusive happiness. And typical Tom finds out the new home is great for a while. He enjoys the new neighbors. He enjoys the bigger yard. He enjoys the kids playing. But after a while, the mortgage payment comes or something happens, and Tom is not near as happy as he thought he would be with that new thing that was supposed to solve his big problem of why is it I can't have sustained happiness. So Tom decides he's going to go out and buy a car. What I need is a car, not just any car. I need a, a fast car, a red car, a convertible car. That's going to provide me with happiness. You know, the ever-increasing midlife crisis vehicle that you see, where this is the thing that if I have it every time I get in that car, every time I drive down the road, I will find myself having happiness, and it will stay that way, and I'll keep on being happy. And so Tom buys the car, drives down the road, and realizes how great it is. And then all of a sudden, Tom's happiness begins to depreciate even faster than that car's value. In fact, studies show us that those who buy an object for them to, to find happiness or fulfillment in quickly have diminishing returns on how much they really enjoy that particular object before all of a sudden they're like, this is the same thing I've always had and there's nothing new about this. And so Tom goes after experiences. Let's go and, and do stuff. Things is not what I can find happiness. But if I have the, the next great experience, that's going to give me lasting and sustaining happiness. And it is true if you have to choose between things and experiences. Experiences give us longer lasting happiness than things do. But Tom goes from one trip to the next, one travel place to the next, one picture perfect picture he can put on social media to the next one just to show if he can have this most sustaining happiness. And then Tom wakes up one day and realizes the things he has, the, the experiences he has, none of those are giving him what he's craving. 
And I call him typical Tom because Tom would represent, I think, the majority of Americans, at least if we believe the studies that come out on a consistent basis regarding Americans and happiness. We are wealthier, we are healthier, we have better health care, we have better things, we have bigger houses, we have nicer cars, we have nicer about everything in the world than we've ever had in the history of civilization. But when studies come out regarding what Americans seek most of all, the answer is they seek sustained happiness. We're looking for that ever-elusive idea of what can make me happy. How can I be happy consistently? In fact, I saw this headline that I thought was ironic that said simply this, Americans are making themselves miserable pursuing happiness. That all these individuals are out there using time, money, and wealth convinced I can just find the right, the right solution and I will be a happy person. In fact, it came out last year that we are the most unhappy we have ever been as a society. And that's not because of the pandemic. I thought first, well, of course we are. We're, we've got isolation issues. We've got stresses. But it came out from a survey that happened not in the middle of the pandemic, but in 2019, that we are at least happy as we've ever been all the way back to 1950 with a gradual decline year in and year out of overall happiness. And every year when people ask, what do you want in life? Those big resolutions, it's things like you know, money, weight, happiness. Those are the big three we have because we're all pursuing it. We're all looking for something that gives us not just a, a momentary thing, but, but a long-lasting happiness. In fact, I would argue Americans aren't looking for happiness. They're looking for, for joy. They're looking for the thing the Bible speaks of that's not just something that you have now and is gone tomorrow, but something that's far more than just that fleeting moment. We all know happiness is fleeting. We know how quickly it can come and go. In my personal life, I know how quickly happiness can come and go. Last night, I had a cheeseburger, and I had a fries, or onion rings, and I had a Coke, and I had everything that if my doctor was there, I'm not supposed to have. And in that moment in time, sitting there in my car, eating that food, which I had planned to cheat on some diet things there, I enjoyed every single bite of that bacon cheeseburger, eating it in my car, enjoying it. Then I got to the hotel room. I got a little later at night. I got to the next morning, and I woke up this morning. I was sluggish, didn't feel as well. My blood sugar wasn't what it was supposed to be. And I thought to myself, that momentary moment of happiness sure went by rather quickly. And if I do that on a consistent basis, yes, week in and week out, I'll be happy every time I have my cheeseburger and onion rings, and every time I have the sweet tea versus the unsweet tea. But over time, I'll get on that scale, I'll talk to the doctor, and my momentary happiness will lead to some fleeting unhappiness in my life. I know some of you are probably sports fans, and I'm assuming some of you being so close to Austin are the fans of the other UT team in America. I'm a fan of the real UT, the one there in Knoxville, Tennessee, with the right color oranges. And we are a team that back in 1998 brought me untold happiness. I had moved to Denver, Colorado. My dad was a student at Bear Valley. I was a seventh grader. I got to watch the University of Tennessee go undefeated, win a national championship against Florida State, and had all of that unrelenting happiness of watching week in and week out, win after win after win. I will tell you how fleeting happiness is. Because now I get to watch Tennessee week in and week out, lose after lose after lose, new coach after new, it's hard to sound like the Tennessee, I get the, the UT in, in Austin as well, I guess, after coach after coach, with each time believing the next time it's going to get it right and we're going to be a happy fan base. 
I'm also one of those fans that keeps watching games every Saturday, knowing I'm going to be disappointed with my wife looking at me and saying things like, it's just a game. They can't hear you yelling at them. Why are you so upset right now as I'm watching this game that's supposed to make me happy in the morning? Or the fact that about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago now, I bought a truck. It was a big deal for me. I grew up in West Tennessee where everybody had trucks, and most people had pretty impractical trucks. You didn't buy a truck because you needed a truck. You bought a truck because you're supposed to. In fact, when I looked at the hotel last night on the 10th floor and looked over the parking lot, I realized I'm with my people here because most of the folks here have trucks that are probably impractical and don't need that kind of truck. Well, I gave up my truck four years ago. My son was born to buy a minivan. That's like the grand reversal of fortunes there, a truck to minivan. So it came time for me to get a truck, and I went to the lot, and I found a truck, and I had very clear things in mind. had to be a V8. I didn't want this EcoBoost stuff. I wanted a V8 engine. I wanted it to be loud enough that it just mildly annoys the neighbors, but not so much they're too mad at me since my neighbors go to church with me. I don't want to have that friction there. I wanted to have bigger than normal tires that I could go mudding in despite the fact that I'm an interstate warrior most of the time. And I wanted to make sure that it was full-wheel drive. For the one time a year in Nashville we have snow, I can show off. I can go anywhere I want to in the midst of this snowstorm. Impractical as can be. In fact, most of my daily routine, uh, on, I, I, you know, I live about three-minute walk to the church building, so the truck's not even needed for that. My Monday through Friday job, I work for a healthcare tech company, uh, and I'm in sales for that company talking to health systems. Most of my work is done via Zoom and the computer in front of me. There is zero practicality in my truck whatsoever. But in that moment in time when I bought it, I felt happy, right? You jump in the truck, you take off, you see what it can do. You have my four-year-old son run up Emmett and say, Wow, two at the time. Wow, this is a big truck. I want to take your cool car, Dad. That's one of the first words he had. You have all that going up. And then all of a sudden, your two-year-old son becomes a three-year-old and a four-year-old, becomes more around the world, more, more, uh, more uh, observant. And he sees a truck bigger than your truck. And he says things like, Dad, why is that truck bigger than yours? And you begin to realize there's not much happiness in that. And, Dad, why don't you get a bigger truck? And I don't like that truck better. Or then you realize that gas prices have gone up and you go to fill that truck up and you think this is a lot nicer when gas was like a dollar something in the beginning of all of this and now it's gone back up to some normalcy and you realize that truck has that and that momentary happiness you have sort of drifts away slowly at a time. And we all have those experiences where we're attempting to find ways to have something more in this life than what we sometimes appear to be doldrums. We're looking for sustained happiness. We're looking for joy. We're not the only group to ever look for that, right? I mean, I don't think Americans in this particular world are unique in the fact that we're struggling with the issue of joy. In fact, if you go back to the book of Philippians, you have Paul there trying to convince Christians of his day that joy is a part of the reality that we live in. There's a reason why you've got commandments in 1 Thessalonians to rejoice always, or here in Philippians to rejoice always. And again, Paul says, I say rejoice. That, that implication there that we all struggle with this concept of joy. In the book of Philippians, Paul writes about this idea of rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. And as my topic says here, we sometimes stop and say, Paul, do you really mean that? Rejoice always. Paul, really, ha have you seen my life? Have you gone to the doctor with me when things didn't go very well? Have you taken your child to the doctor and had bad doctor's appointments? Have you seen my bank account, my finances? Have you seen what's taking place in the last year? Have you seen some friction going on in my life? Paul, are you sure I'm supposed to rejoice always? 
There seems to be times in my life where rejoicing is the furthest thing I want to do. Look at the things that are happening to me. Paul, are you really sure about that? And sometimes we wonder, is a verse like this even possible? Because life can bring you so many hard hits. Now, look across this room. I don't know your stories. You don't know mine. But I guarantee you, if we were to sit down and talk about life struggles, life storms, we could all share things where we had some times which we struggled through life and what it brought to us. We had to figure out how do you maintain and survive and have joy in the midst of those things. You might jump back and think about who Paul's writing to. The church in Philippi and the Philippians. And the struggle they would have as early Christians and all the things that would take place, not just when Paul first went to the city preaching the gospel, when he left that city, and in the first several hundred years post that time there, the, the persecution we read about and learn about, the things that they struggle with. You read a verse and say, Paul, are you sure you meant this idea of rejoice always? Made the life of Paul himself. And you wonder, how does Paul practice what he preaches here? You read 2 Corinthians when Paul says, let me be a fool for a while and decides in that moment in time to lift out all the struggles and difficulties he's faced in his life, not just in general, but because he's an apostle of Jesus, all the bad things that are happening. You begin to step back and think, Paul, are you sure we get this is possible? Are you sure a command like this is even possible to be fulfilled? Can we really rejoice always? They get a book like Philippians, a book where Paul's overarching theme, or at least the key word that runs throughout is a word, joy. Joy and rejoice is seen from start to finish in this book, not because Paul is writing to a church that has it all figured out. This is not Paul writing to a church at Philippi and saying, you're the most joy-filled church I've ever seen, and this, everything's going so well, and keep practicing joy. This is Paul writing to a church at Philippi that I would say has the same problems a lot of us today have, and that is a church that's looking for joy. In fact, Paul will say things like, make my joy complete. He'll talk about the things in their life to where they do not have the joy they should have. In the book of Philippians, Paul will answer the question, how do you rejoice in the Lord always? How does that look like when life has its ups and downs? What does it look like whenever so many of our pursuits to find that momentary rush of happiness end up being less than what we wanted them to be? How exactly do we live something like that out? In Philippians, Paul gives us two paths. I love the book of Philippians because it's a letter that's also very narrative in its nature, meaning Paul will talk about some key principles and ideas, but at the same time, Paul's main way of teaching is through connecting together a series of examples. Examples on one side of those who are joy killers or those who lack joy and what their overall motivations is that lead them to lack that joy. And examples on the other side of those individuals who despite all the difficulties life throws at them, seem to still be able to maintain joy. In Philippians, you have this section after section of examples where Paul says there are, there are two paths you can pursue if you're trying to find that ever-elusive concept of joy. There are two paths that you can go after. He provides examples of each one and asks us basically to answer the question, which one do you fall under? When you think about that path of joy, if you're looking for that in life, and we all are looking for that in life, how do we achieve something like that? The typical Tom would say, buy the next thing. Do the next upgrade. Cheer for the team the next week. And over and over again, attempting to find that happiness that really we're not looking for at all. We're looking for something so much more. 
And in Philippians chapter 4, Paul will give us those good and bad examples. And I'll walk through them this afternoon. I want to walk through those bad examples first. I want to end on a positive note. And then the good examples to talk us through what it looks like to really be a people of joy. And here's what Paul's big point will be. Joy starts with having the right kind of mind. There are two minds at work. One mind sets itself on earthly things. The other mind sets its, has the mind of Christ. And which mind you choose and which mind you focus on will de determine whether or not you'll find joy in the life that you currently live or not. It will determine whether or not we have churches that are joy-filled or not. Which path we choose and which mind we have makes that determination. So we have that first category, bad examples of individuals who are pursuing joy but failing. Now, if there's one word that could be overarching with those groups, it's the word selfishness. These individuals have chosen the best way for me to find joy to live life is to fulfill my ambitions, to live out a selfish life, to get things my way. They're the Burger King group, so to speak. Have it your way, except in their case, have it my way and enjoy it that way. And Paul has several examples of this, but three big ones point out. First in chapter 1, you've got a group of individuals who are preaching the gospel while Paul is in prison. That chapter 1 section from verse 15 down to verse 17 where Paul says, here I am sitting in a Philippian jail, or sitting in jail right in the Philippians. Things aren't what they should be. I'm in jail. I'm getting to preach the gospel, which is a good thing. And other are preaching the gospel too, which is a good thing. Now, some of them are preaching out of a genuineness, and some of them, he says, are preaching the gospel in some way to spite Paul, and in another way, he says, out of their selfish ambition. They seem to almost think, finally, Paul's out of the picture, and I can grab the spotlight for a few moments there, that I can be the preacher of the gospel, that I, in some way, uh, can have this show me the way here. Paul grabs this group of individuals and says, there are some who even do good things for the purpose of, of selfishness, for the purpose of believing by doing this good thing, it in some way enhances me and who I am and makes me better, and that's what their pursuit of joy is. You know, one of the, over, one of the, the big sort of fundamental needs most people have is the need to be respected and admired, which is a good thing on one sense. It, it builds us up to want to live honorable lives if that is the case you have. But some folks want cheap admiration and they want cheap honor. They want the idea of I want to be respected and I want people to see just how great I am. And they pursue that with all of their power to make sure they are recognized as being the best. Let's read chapter 1 for a moment. Chapter 1 is about preachers, so don't think all of a sudden just because you preach and teach the Word of God, you can't fall into this category of somebody who gets overcome with making sure I get the recognition I believe I deserve. And I've met some miserable preachers who are searching for that recognition. And because they felt slighted or did not get it or felt they should be better known or whatever it might be, they, they just lived a life of misery instead of joy. One of my favorite historical figures is John Adams. Uh, John Adams is a guy I've read his books, I've read through his stuff. He is a brilliant mind and does not, in my opinion, get enough credit for what took place in early America. And in John Adams' mind, he also did not get enough credit. In fact, when you read John Adams' stuff, he is constantly tearing down the other individuals, a part of the movement of that early thing about how they're this and how they're that and how they did this thing and that thing because he felt he should have got a whole lot more recognition than he did. 
And some of the stuff is legitimate. John Adams' viewpoint on things was better than some of the other individuals there. He had better views of human rights and what it looked like to, uh, to live as a nation of free individuals. He had better views of those things. He had more morally upright views in those areas. But one of the overarching things that biographers of John Adams say is this. The man, despite his accomplishments, was miserable because he was always looking to be recognized and for people to think he is better than the other person. Whether that's true or not in terms of reality, in his mind, he always felt like he was slighted and needed to be somebody who could be promoted and recognized for who he is. It can happen in your, our lives too. When we seek out recognition and we seek to be known for things, we can follow a path that leads to miserableness because we can never get enough. There's never a point where enough pats on the back is just the right amount for us to be content. It's always, that was good. Give me the next thing now. The second example Paul gives. In chapter 3 of Philippians, he refers to this group simply as the word dogs. And not in any sort of 1990, 2000 slang in which you might talk to a friend and call him dog in that moment. Or even like you might have a pooch at home that you say, this is my dog. And, you know, it sits at the table with you and hangs out with you and you pet it in the morning. No, the idea of a dog in their day and age was nothing good whatsoever about them. You didn't really like dogs that much. And Paul refers to certain groups as dogs who try because of their own selfish needs to make everybody do things the way they feel it should be done. I've been circumcised, you must be circumcised. I've done this, you must do that. And you cannot be a part of what we're doing unless you meet the box and requirements that I have. That's their idea. It's selfishness in a different reproach. I don't ever want to feel uncomfortable. So whether it's beneficial to you or not, I don't care. It all depends on how I feel about it in that moment. And if you won't do what I want you to do, that's not going to work. Those are joy killers in both your own life and also in the life of those around you. If you're constantly the person who's nitpicking somebody else, you're going to destroy their joy, but also your joy because you will learn quickly you can't control everybody else. It'll drive you crazy. Even in areas where you wish you can control people to do good things, you see the bad things they're doing, it'll drive you crazy. So much more so in the areas of liberty that we have, we want to control other people's opinions or what they might do. I have to step back and tell myself sometimes, I have friends who I love who are foolish, at least in my eyes. They're not doing unchristian things. But I think they're doing dumb things sometimes. And why would you do that? And why would you do this? And I think they probably look at me and say, what's well, is a good godly man? He does some dumb things sometimes. And I realize I can't control them. And if they try to control me, we're both going to be miserable. But whether it's in life in general or in churches, you have those same issues or individuals saying they have to be the ones that control things. And that leads to a path of reducing joy, both in a church setting and in your own individual life. Anytime you're seeking your own way, normally the result might be momentary happiness with that win. But long term, the misery builds up more and more and more. The final example might be the most important. There in Philippians chapter 4. In fact, it's in the middle of a section that's called an inclusio or our bracketing where Paul in chapter 3 verse 1 says, Rejoice in the Lord. Uh, and again, I say rejoice. And in chapter 4 down in verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. And in between those two things, I think Paul is getting at how do we rejoice in the midst of all this. And he's talking about those dogs, the bad things they do, and about his own life and the good things he does. And then we get to chapter 4, and we get two women who come to the forefront. 
Now, it's not very often in Scripture you have individuals named. And when it's a negative thing, it's even more awkward in terms of the text. And when you think about that most likely this letter is being sent to Philippi, there's a reader who stands in front of the church and reads out that particular text. This text becomes even more the steal words from people younger than me, cringeworthy in that particular section. Can you imagine a moment? Here you are in Philippi, and you're the designated reader, whether that's the deacon or the preacher or an elder, and you stand up, and you begin to read, and you get to these words, and you think, oh, wow, those ladies are sitting right here in front of me, and you have to say what Paul has written. But things have gotten so bad in Philippi because there seems to be two women who have let selfishness destroy their joy and the joy of the church. And I can say that because Paul here is going to do some things in this letter to sort of point out this is a key problem in Philippi. In fact, there in chapter 4, verse 2, he says, I urge Utica and I urge Synthache to be of the same mind, to live in harmony some versions have. Now, I want to point out two sort of words here that are important. And maybe we overlook them because we're English readers and don't read Greek. But those two words, the words translated urge, or maybe petition or beseech some Bibles have, for Paul to use that once is normally a big deal. In fact, when you read ancient Greek letters, the use of a petition verb is almost like a highlighter today or a bold print, where all of a sudden it's like, boom, this is important. To use two of them is like, you know, bold italics and whatever other thing you do to annoy your teacher. And they're like, you got too much stuff on the screen behind you there. It's, it's make it very clear this is what is extremely important. And Paul here says, I want to urge you and I want to urge you because I need you guys to get things in order. In fact, the way petition verbs work in ancient writing is everything before the verb is appropriate background. Everything after the verb is sort of living that out in the moment there. So Paul here has spent three chapters to get to his punchline. I always talk about it this way. You have a college student, or even I have a nine-year-old, and can do something similar. They write you a letter or they come in, they talk to you. Hey, Dad, how are you today today at work? And Hey, it's good. Thanks for asking. It's great. Hey, hey, was this going on? Da, 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 da. And they, they kind of sweeten you up. Or maybe the college student says, hey, look, I've been studying extra hard uh, this semester, and I've been putting in extra work, and, and that means the, the part-time job I was going to take didn't quite go through because I've been doing a lot more homework this year. My grades are good. Then they get to the point. Could you please send money? Now, the whole point of the letter was, could you please send money? And the whole point of the buttering up of dad can be, hey, can we go out to eat tonight? Usually whatever restaurant of their choice. Hey, dad, can we get pizza after the long, you've had a hard day at work and we're glad you've done this. I had a hard day at school. Can we get pizza tonight? That, that's sort of the push there. Oftentimes put there by their mom to kind of go in there and talk to your dad about it. But their main point was, can we get pizza? Or can I get money? That's the main point. The main point of Philippians is these two women are so messing up things in church that they are taking the joy away from everybody because of their selfish ambition they have. And Paul has to write a whole letter saying, you cannot have complete joy until the two of you learn to live in harmony. And what's sad is Paul says these were two individuals who are workers. If you've been a part of church life, you know that when you have two individuals who are strong workers, men or women, and the two of them cannot get along, and the two of them always seek their own way, and the two of them always seem to be fighting, that's what you're going to have. You're going to have frustration, joy killing, and you're going to have times in where things aren't what they should be. In the context here, Paul says, I want you to rejoice again, rejoice to a group of individuals who seem to be lacking the joy that Paul wants them to have. And one of the big reasons are these two women. 
always wish we had a Philippians, not chapter 2, but a part 2. Do we ever learn what these two women do? Do they ever, do they ever get things right? Does this work in a way that, that brings about unity and therefore, uh, and therefore joy in this church? But I want you to see in all three of these bad examples of joy killers what the overarching theme is. It's a selfish pursuit. See, we think if I fulfill my desires, the end result is I'm going to be happier and therefore be more joyful on a sustained basis. And what we learn is when you decide to only fulfill your own desires, you never quite get those desires you want. I'm going to have to get on to Wayne here. Wayne put me in a hotel room with two TVs. The first thing press as she walks in, she says, I have my own TV now. Every time we travel, she's going to ask that all-important question, how many TVs do we have so that she can watch what she wants instead of being stuck watching ESPN and seeing who the Dolphins drafted the night before? Because all of a sudden, the thing we thought that brought us happiness, the next day, something better comes along, and it's gone. Because as long as we're pursuing these selfish desires, we never find joy. So Paul gives a better path. And the better path is found primarily in chapter 2, where he begins the chapter by saying, since we have certain things because of our relationship with Christ, there's a a long list there. The word there is if, but the the construct there means since. Since we have fellowship with God, since we have encouragement with Christ, since we have consolation of the Spirit, since all these things are true, verse 2 says, make my joy complete by having the same mind and maintaining the same Spirit, having this unity. What kind of mind, Paul? Have the same mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. What's that mind look like? Well, Paul simply says this that mind has a very simple mantra who puts others above self. You're looking for real sustaining joy, not just simply a matter of circumstances, but real joy that comes not from. How do I fulfill every one of my desires? But how do I live a life where I consistently live up to the mind of Christ to put other people above myself? And Paul's going to give examples in chapter 2. you got the first example there of Timothy, who Paul in there in verses, verse 15 and following will talk about Timothy and what he does. And Paul says there that Timothy was the kind of man who does two things. One, does not seek his own, but rather the well-being of others. And two, Paul says, who has his interest not in his own self, but has the interest of Jesus. In 19 through 21, Paul lays out a very, very basic Christian understanding of what our life should be about, not concerned about our own well-being, but those around us. And secondly, when it ultimately comes down to it, we concern ourselves with the things of Christ. Paul is sending Timothy, or will send Timothy, to Philippi to take care of some things because that's the kind of man Timothy is. That's example number one of others above self, of the, of the mind that makes joy complete, of the mind of Christ. is a man like Timothy who, when it comes to his life, says, what does Jesus want me to do and how can I serve others? Or we might say, practices the greatest command, loving God and loving his neighbor. Those are the forefront of Timothy's life. And that's the first example Paul gives of somebody who brings joy. Now think about Timothy and our own need of that. I thought Brad did a great job of pointing out the last year, the good, the bad, the ugly, so to speak, of what's going on with this pandemic. And it happens not just in churches, but if you have 
uh, the guts to do it or you have the stomach, I guess, to handle that, go watch some cable news show every now and then. You see the constant sort of fighting and infighting at a national level that we have right now. And you begin to see that there are a few people who seem to genuinely have this mindset. And if ever we needed an other above self mindset in the church and the world around us, right now is the time we need it because right now we're, we're in camps and we're fighting and we're bickering and everything else is going on. And it's in the world, it's in the church, sadly, it's happening more than we wish it would. You know the, solve, the solving nature of that is? If Paul could say about us what he says about Timothy, that he's genuinely concerned about the welfare of others. And on top of that, he doesn't seek his own interests, verse 21, but those of Christ. How do you make Paul's joy complete and therefore make your joy complete? Paul says, you follow the example of a man like Timothy. When it comes to what he focuses on, it's not his own interests, it's others. And Jesus above all others, and making sure his interests align with his. Secondly, Paul says a man named Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus is one of those Bible, uh, I hate the word really characters because it's not a story in that sense, but Bible people that, that doesn't have a lot said about him. But when it does, you think, wow, this is the kind of guy I want to talk to in heaven. I want to get more details about his life. Because here's Epaphroditus who Paul says is sick nearly to death. This man is close to dying. Now, in the ancient world, what we had in the last year was not nearly as uncommon as it is today. We've got so used to the fact that we have eradicated all this stuff that we actually had a pandemic, and it's like, this is strange. As I mentioned earlier, we don't have a pill for this, or I can't do this. Why, why can't I solve all these issues? It puts us in a turmoil. But in their day and age, it wasn't uncommon to have a good portion of people. It's probably a bad word. A bad portion of people who end up sick or dead because of some virus that come through. Epaphroditus has something that has him to the point of death. Here's what Paul says about Epaphroditus. That I sent him to you because when he was on his deathbed, close to dying, his main concern was not his health, whether or not he was going to stay alive. His main concern was, I wonder whether the church in Philippi is worried about me or not. I want to make sure they're not overly concerned about my health in this moment as he's serving Paul in prison. Imagine that. Here's Epaphroditus who serves Paul in prison while on the brink of death. And on top of that, his concern is not with his own well-being, but with the Philippians to make sure they're okay. And they're not taking the news of his sickness too hard. That's the mind of joy of others above self. Then you have Paul, who in chapter 1 talks about while in prison. He puts those above self. In chapter 3, he talks about all the great accomplishments he's ever made and says, in all those accomplishments, I put others above myself. And everything that I do, I make sure I live that out. And you get the key one here in chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, where he does talk about how the mind was in Christ Jesus. And beginning down from verse 6 to verse 11, most Bibles have this in some way put aside as poetry, probably an ancient hymn that they sang. And it's almost as like if Paul says, you sing this song about Jesus. And that wouldn't be the first church ever to sing a song and not live out its words, for sure. But you sing this song about Jesus, but you've missed it. Look at the pattern of life he lived. While being able to say he has equality with God, meaning it's in his grasp. He wasn't lying about that. Equality with God was there. He emptied himself. And the extent of that is something people debate all the time. But either way, he lowers himself down to become a man. And there's no way for us to imagine the leap it took downward for him to do that. But he's putting others above self. Not just a man, 
but a servant. That's a servant, but somebody who goes to die. Not somebody who goes to die, but death on a cross. And Paul shows this spiraling pattern of humility and says this is the mind that we should have. This is the mind that brings joy, the mind of Jesus who's willing to put the needs of others above themselves. Who's willing to look and not say it's about my needs or what I do, but rather to say it's about what God wants me to do and how can I serve you. You Typical typical Tom is searching for happiness. He's going to this place and that place. He's buying this thing or that thing, this experience or that experience. But he's not finding joy. Because joy is not about what circumstances bring in the moment. Joy is about a life in which you've determined to have the mind of Christ, in which you put others' needs above yourself. So I can travel to Guatemala amongst those who, from the world standards, have nothing, who are a lot more joy-filled than traveling down the block to Brentwood, Tennessee, one of the richest cities in America, and seeing those who seem to lack it. So on the NICU when I was holding my son when he was first born, I look at other families holding their children. I could see joy in that moment more than I see on a softball field on Saturday with healthy kids playing and parents yelling like they shouldn't at, at umpires that are on that field. And so I can see more joy in those going in for a cancer treatment at times than somebody healthy. So I can see joy in a funeral, a group of mourners, sometimes better than those who are living life in the healthiest of sins because they have figured out what brings joy. It's not selfish ambition. It's not pursuing the next thing that will fulfill whatever desire you have. Further joy is this, having the mind which is also in Christ Jesus that puts others above themselves. And when you have that life, you don't find fleeting happiness. You find sustained joy. And then we can say with Paul, rejoice in the Lord always.